Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. With the immense pleasure of sitting down with Edward Evanson from Slush Pool Slash Brains uh, to talk about mining pools, uh, their profit strategies, how they're uh, creating value-added services for miners, uh, what the future of mining pools may look like, uh, a little bit of wine, a little bit of cheese, great time, great conversation, great follow-up to the conversation I had with Leo Zhang. So if you just listened to that podcast, uh, this is a great follow-up to that, to to add to that conversation. This conversation was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App. Da-da-da-da, Cash App. They're helping you stack sats, send sats, sell sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please. I think I said sell sats already. But we're saying sats, 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 sats because you can make sats a standard. We're no longer buying fractions of Bitcoin. We're stacking whole sats, and you can stack whole sats uh, automatically. You can set it and forget it. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Uh, you can DCA into sats via the via the Cash App. I almost said via the Bitcoin. Via the Bitcoin. No, via the Cash App is allowing you to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. On top of this, they have uh, Cash App Investing, which allows you to stack slivers of stonks. If you are into that type of thing, you can uh, purchase as little as $1 worth of a stonk that may be on your mind. Uh, you can stack a sliver of a stonk. Because all of this is connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start investing today. Cash App may even be your bank account. They're offering account number and routing numbers to uh, users so you can get your paychecks direct deposited into the, the app. You can be your new bank. You can leave all the old banks behind, all those old farts. Cash App can be your new bank. I should say that Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square, member SIPC. As always, make sure you use the code STACKINGSATS when you download the app. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. Enjoy this episode. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's Marty Ben here. Uh, looking forward to uh, another deep dive into mining. I'm very excited for this particular conversation because I think it is actually going to be a great extension to the conversation I had with Leo Zhang, which you freaks uh, should be able to listen to by this point in time. We're recording before that drop, but by the time this drops, that will have dropped as well. I'm sitting across from Edward Evanson from slush pool in brains edward how you doing doing great thanks for having me on the podcast uh i've been a listener for a while and it's good to finally get on here well you're putting me to shame with the studio you're sitting in right now i'm looking through zoom from a back deck i've got construction to my left so the mic's definitely picking that up to some extent uh it's very cold out and you are in a soundproof warm studio and you have the best uh audio quality of any guest i've ever had on zoom so i'm very jealous it's actually one of the first times we've used it um 
So we kind of put the sound padding and everything in the room and then our logo up and purple lighting and all that. And then we promptly just stuck a bunch of miners in here. And so we can barely use it because there's already, you know, four to five miners constantly humming in here for testing some of our stuff. So I'm glad we could get to finally bust it out. Testing in the podcast studio. You know, you got to, you got to make sure each room has multi-purpose to get as much uh, bang for your buck in terms of, of rent. So well, it's the only uh, soundproof room in, in the uh, whole office, so people tend to put it in here. Otherwise, they get really annoyed if it's in one of the other rooms. Yeah, I can imagine that gets annoying, that screaming. The, the cybernetic hornet noise is, uh, is, a very, <laughs> is a very loud and annoying one if, if you're subjected to it for too long. Uh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about today. We'll get to mining pools and firmware and stuff like that eventually. I just want to learn more about you, how you came. You've had a very interesting... Uh, career up to this point have traveled the world it seems from california have lived in china where are your, where are your roots now you're in the czech republic but uh, yeah i'm based in prague yeah yeah um so how did you number one find bitcoin number two specifically hone in on on mining and and working with slush and brains um so i guess i'll tackle the bitcoin thing first i, I first encountered bitcoin uh just very casually and superficially. It was in, I think like 2012 or something like that. I just overheard one of my friends speaking about it at university and I didn't look into it and I didn't know anything more about it besides the brief five minute conversation we had on it. Um, and then some years later, right before I went to China, uh, I was in a grad program studying economics and history. And I was particularly interested in the formation of early financial institutions and early political economies and how they evolved into what we have today. And I was studying the first illegal uh, mint outside of uh, England and the British Empire and what is now New England, like Boston area. And I thought it was really fascinating that this tiny colony started minting its own silver coins called pine tree shillings and the resulting catastrophe that followed when the crown in England found out about it and it started sparking these debates over whether or not they had the right to make their own or mint their own coins or not and whether the the crown should have a monopoly when it wasn't extending any help or uh, providing any liquidity or like money supply to the colonies at the time and so I just started getting really interested in topics like that and whoa, 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 whoa. can we dive into that topic a little bit yeah of course yes. yeah Infinitely fascinating. So what what happened? They had the New England colony was minting silver coins. Uh, so they had a private banking system, essentially. Yeah. So when uh, the specifically Massachusetts, right? Like what is now New England was basically uh, in all but name, the colony of Massachusetts. They were the most powerful. They had the most leverage. Everything that is now Maine was Massachusetts as well. They were the most developed. Um, and when they first got there, they didn't have really any actual specie, what it was called, like gold or silver coins. And so they had to do things like employ uh, natives to trade wampum, these shells that were often harvested off the uh, coast of Long Island Sound. But when the Dutch and English started doing that, they started sort of making like a factory business out of it. And so those inflated away almost instantly because the natives realized that the colonists really wanted this and can get stuff like copper and iron if they did trade with them. And so within a matter of a couple of decades, wampum had inflated to basically being worthless. Um, 
and then so they needed to find other solutions and it was just really difficult facilitating any trade um, paying debts things like that so eventually they employed a very prominent man from boston by the name of john hull and he was a silver worker silversmith and uh, they enlisted him the town council to basically set up the first uh, massachusetts mint and this is really significant considering that at the time this is like well into england's rise as the most powerful uh, like superpower in the world at the time they hadn't reached their peak yet but still extremely you know not to be messed with and uh, this was the only and first instance of a uh, entity owned by the british empire that uh, started making its own money and of course you can imagine the consequences for doing so were automatically like the the top tier, the worst things you could possibly get. It was considered treasonous. Um, you'd be put to death. You'd be made an example of. So it was pretty risky undertaking this venture. And basically what happened is when it came to light uh, in the late 1660s through 80s, a couple people that were responsible for it were sort of dragged before the crown in Whitehall in, uh, in England. And uh, they were basically told to explain themselves. And they very cleverly put a pine tree on the back and said that it was actually the tree that housed uh, Charles I when he was hiding during the English Civil War. And it just so happened that I think James II, who was one of his grandsons, uh, was in power at the time. And they said it was an homage to the king. And through its symbolism, they paid homage to him and they uh, fairly like sent the king his, his tax, because you're supposed to give like a fifth of the specie to the, the crown. And they sent it to him in the form of timber for masts, which were only available in like the large trees that were found in North America at the time, because England was largely deforested by then. Um, codfish, which is still prominent today in Western Europe. I mean, you can't find codfish in the waters around here, but it's still like a national dish in Portugal and Spain. Um, yeah, and, and eventually, somehow, I don't know how, they wiggled their way out of death sentences and public ex executions. They had to shut down the mint eventually, but it was a really interesting sort of contest and experiment and battle between the colonies and the crown and whether or not the colonies were going to have control over their own money or not. Yeah. It's a tale as old as time, the struggle for uh, sovereign monies. It's, that's a fascinating story. And the way to wiggle out with the pine tree on the back and a 20% tariff to the, to the crown. Yeah, so because it was so risky back then, right, you had to like set up ships, it took months to get across the Atlantic, you needed to finance it somewhat yourself, you know, et cetera, like exposure to disease, you name it, really risky venture. And people saw all the silver and gold that the Spaniards were getting out of the New World, particularly out of Potosi, this mountain that was basically had a massive silver mine underneath it. And, you know, the other European powers wanted that for themselves. So they said, hey, if you go out and explore this New World, which is extremely risky, and, you know, at your own peril, um, you get to keep uh, four-fifths of whatever you find in terms of minerals and ore, but you have to give um, basically the king his cut. I can't remember the exact term they called it now. It's been years. But basically, 20% uh, of anything you found belonged to the crown. It's crazy. It's crazy how like, colonization and exploration led to these insane uh deals between colonists and the crown and so the crown would finance the mainly finance mostly finance excuse me the the, sh the travel across no it was actually uh, uh the colonies were originally set up as joint venture companies 
So um, when you see the earliest references of like Virginia and Massachusetts, it wasn't as a colony or a state or a government, but as a company. Um, and basically a bunch of middle class to somewhat wealthy men at that time would pull together funds to uh, support the setup of these colonies in the hopes that the natural resources that they would gain from the setting up of these companies at the time would pay back, you know, a hundredfold. It's fascinating. And here we are. I'm in New Jersey in a plastic house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so you're studying this stuff and this naturally just pique your interest about Bitcoin, the fact that it is a, um, a political way to create a money that is separate from any state. Yeah, I mean, immediately, because um, I'd been studying stuff like I just described for years at the point I actually dove into Bitcoin. Um, and it was just automatically fascinating to me and its potential to sort of just completely make all these contests throughout time irrelevant surrounding money. Um, and I just, in that regard, in a historical context, I immediately recognized the potential once I actually understood it, once I got beyond that, you know, five minute superficial conversation I had had years before. Um, and that's what really kind of made me dive down the rabbit hole. And then I got to Shanghai, China started going to like local meetups, you know, we just meet at bars or parks, um, a bunch of people that are local, whether they be Chinese or another expat, get together and talk about what they were doing, um, whether it be Bitcoin or crypto, like blockchain in general, ether projects, mining, a bunch of different people there. And then this eventually led to um, getting into uh, mining in a professional capacity. It was easily the most interesting part of the whole ecosystem to me. And then I moved to Beijing, start working in it um, with F2Pool. And now I'm here at Brains and Slushpool in Prague, uh, three years later, four years later almost. So what is, uh, what's your experience with the pool life been? This is uh, an area, it's funny, because mining, I would say until maybe more recently, is not, not getting the love that I think it deserves, particularly when it comes to pools. It's probably one of the most important it's obviously one of the most important parts of the network. It's it's one of the major stakeholders and the thing that makes it go around. And uh, there's been a lot of debates in the past of uh, the distribution of of hash power, particularly in pools, is centralized. But before we get to that discussion, like what what's it like working at a pool? What what have your um, what have like what's your what's your job been at at these pools up to this point? Yeah, so I've been mostly on the uh, the business development and marketing like growth side. Um, and I can tell you, I guess my overall experience is the market changes extremely quickly. Um, you always got to pay attention because the, the markets are 24-7. Something new is always happening and it's fiercely competitive. Um, really fast paced, really fun. Um, and yeah, I guess that's kind of like the, the short and dirty of it. But uh, in terms of mining pools in general, um, I think we're well into this shift, but my long-term outlook on them is that they'll cease to exist as we've traditionally known them. Um, I've been saying this for a while now, and it's it's clearly happening in many cases. So, whereas before you'd have uh, entities that would just solely be a mining pool, you can't really do that anymore. Um, like the race to the bottom and fees doesn't support that type of business model. There have been multiple mining pool companies that have publicly stated that they don't intend to turn a profit off their pool and they're using it to leverage some other services they have like 
looking at Holby or Binance, the exchanges, um, trying to push off exchange services onto them, um, some derivatives, some loans, things like that. Or you have others offering financial services in tandem with the pool. Um, or, and then you have us that offers uh, firmware, soon management systems, um, the pool, um, uh, another fun project that will be coming out 2021 that I can't really speak about. And yeah, so everyone's trying to expand vertically aggressively and as larger entities like DCG and potentially uh, legacy institutions get deeper into it, maybe like Fidelity or some other investment funds, the pools will change even further because they'll have to be completely auditable, um, compliant, and then there may even be a need for something like KYC AML in them. Ugh, I hate that. I hate the thought of that. The corporatization of pools. Does that... So let's dive into the dynamics of why the inherent nature of pools is changing. Uh, you alluded to it in the fact that profitability is being driven towards zero. Uh, but what is what is driving that specifically? And then, uh, like how... Let's get into the discussion of whether KYC AM, uh, AML compliance forced on pools uh, sort of denigrates the uh, the sort of essential properties of Bitcoin from a permissionless standpoint. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first point, I guess, would be that some of these larger companies with huge reserves of Bitcoin have you know driven prices into the ground because like i said before they're not interested in really turning a profit on the pool but just want to push some of their other products they can make money on or um uh, somewhat maybe like like i said before loans or structured derivatives or um, exchange services financial services um and so that's been a huge part of it uh the fact that you know, most pools are pretty similar. So really the only thing they can offer as an advantage over the others purely on the pool side would be a reduction in fees. Um, and yeah, so basically what this means is because pools in a large sense are kind of like providing insurance to the miners, right? You get a reduction of variance in exchange for a fee. However, traditionally within insurance companies stemming all the way back to the 16th century, um, in exchange for the insurance company taking on the risk, you pay an insurance premium. But because of the context and scenario I've just described, uh, miners are getting quite comfortable not having to pay that premium. So it's not really a profitable business in and of itself anymore. And it's kind of turned into a loss leading, you know, uh, project that in an attempt to accumulate as much hash rate and as many miners in your network as possible so you can leverage them and their hash rates for other things in the future. Yeah. Try to create moats of users that will then use more of your products. And the, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's crazy how, how quickly it's all evolving too. Um, and I think obviously slush is the oldest pool been around for a while. It 2010. is, it has, uh, it has survived the test of time and you guys have innovated on this. It seems like, um, obviously we had, we had Jan and, uh, Pavel on the podcast. What feels like almost two years ago now at this point, uh, we were talking about Stratum V2, but, um, the, the firmware, uh, that you guys offer your customers, uh, has been on the market for a while. It's something that seems like slush 
and brains uh, really honed in on pretty early and it is a great product that that miners love and so uh, i guess we could jump into the firmware conversation like what are how do you guys view offering that service particularly and what benefit does it bring your customers yeah so the project started several years ago um in reaction to some things we showed Bitmain was doing, <laughs> I guess to put it simply. Um, and those two things primarily do uh, ant bleed and uh, covert ASIC boost. Mm-hmm. And just for a quick 20 second thing for those that don't know what those two things are, ant bleed was basically a backdoor which would allow Bitmain to essentially shut off people's machines or have the ability to. And uh, covert ASIC boost was Bitmain running uh, ASIC boost covertly on its machines and its own facilities without disclosing um, it sort of publicly or allowing their other customers to run it on their machines. So we were the first to offer overt ASIC boost through our open source brains OS, allowing people to get another like 13% efficiency out of mining. And uh, then a bunch of people, of course, since we open sourced it, piled on board and uh, it's pretty much universal now. There's still some people that don't use ASIC boost, but I think it's only really nice hash that does that. And it's because it's for a SHA-256 pool that mines all sorts of different coins, not just Bitcoin. Um, but it's, it's standard now uh, for the most part. And um, then we started developing that primarily for S9s because that was by far the most used machine on the market at the time. And then eventually we added our own proprietary tuning algorithms to it which essentially allows you to squeeze some more profitability out of your machines through overclocking or underclocking and having some uh, a tuner in there, which basically adjusts frequency and voltage to optimal settings given uh, power consumption setting. So, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25%, depending on the power consumption and machine you're running it on. We've since expanded to the S17, S17 Pro, S17 Plus coming out in a couple weeks, um, as well as the T17 models after that. And we already have people working full time on What's Miner as well. So we're looking to expand the service uh, throughout all Ant Miner and What's Miner models and allow people to run their machines maybe a couple more years as people have been able to do with the S9s with tuning firmware, as well as, uh, you know, increase the break even price and give miners the ability to squeeze as much profitability out of their machines as possible because the manufacturers do not allow you to do that with the stock firmware they give. We know that well. When, what's minor? That's uh, that's our question at Great American Mining. Uh, (laughs) But before we get into more details with the firmware, so do you you guys just split some of the the increased revenue from those performance tunes? Is that how you uh, profit out of that? That's what really funds... um, helps fund anyway some of the open source projects we do like the open source versions of the firmware as well as stratum v2 um, and basically what happens is we take uh, a dev fee it's different size depending on the generation of machines for the older machines it's a smaller dev fee about two percent and for the newer gen we'll be charging 2.5 percent um, of the hash rate but this is you know, well under the profit uplift that the miners experience. So they're generally much more happy to pay the dev fee than they are a mining pool fee because they just see the mining pool fee as a cost they have to, to take on of running their operations. Whereas 
the dev fee, they get uh, some sort of efficiency boost or profit uplift that well exceeds the actual dev fee they have to pay. So they see it as a win. Yeah. Now the firmware has always fascinated me. Like why wouldn't the producer or the manufacturer just allow users to mess with because you basically have to jailbreak these machines correct and yeah. and then and tweak uh tweak with the firmware like why would it manufacturers just uh deliver uh the best possible firmware or deliver it uh so that users could tweak with it without having to jailbreak it it's always been a question i mean i think i know the answer but i'd like to hear it's kind of bizarre right because you purchase the machine these very expensive machines by the way and you're supposed to own them at that point. But um, for some odd reason, the manufacturer will do its best to lock you out of the machine that you own. And when you, you know, unless you're a massive miner, because they will unlock it if you're a huge customer in some cases. But if you aren't, then you're kind of screwed because uh, they won't let you into the machine even though you own it. Um, And if they see that you've been sort of trying to get into it or installing some other firmware onto it that you want it completely voids the warranty which is completely fine if they want to void the warranty for that but what i don't understand is uh why they don't do something like open sourcing their firmware because a lot of the reasons when they were asked and when i personally asked them at conferences or just via email or something it's that uh you know we want to protect our clients and we don't want them to be exposed to viruses and things like that but it seems sort of counterintuitive because if something is open source, you'd be able to see exactly what's running on your machine and you wouldn't have to worry about things like viruses or security breaches. Or, or Amplied. Yeah, or stuff like Bitmain putting basically kill switches into their product or seeing, you know, making it easy to see if they are running something that allows them to mine more efficiently against their own and compete with their own client base. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and but of course I see some reasons. There are some uh, reasons why you wouldn't, I guess, just offer tuning or certain features into your firmware as a manufacturer, like standardization is really important. It's really important to be able to say, hey, this is the specs of the hardware we're selling you. Um, this is what you can, like the minimum of what you can expect, plus or minus, you know, two to 5%. And it's it's really important, especially when you're structuring multi-million dollar deals that people know what it is they're getting. And there isn't just a huge variance. Because when you do start doing stuff like under overclocking or tuning, the performance of that is highly dependent on the quality of the chips inside the machines, often referred to as like the silicon lottery. Um, it's always interesting, a little frustrated when miners keep wanting to know like what's the best power setting with your firmware or what's the exact efficiency I can get out of the machine. It's like, well, it's completely dependent on the quality of the machine, how long it's been running, the environment it runs in, is it immersion cooled, is it air cooled, is one, are one of the hashboards dead? Um, you know, there's just so many variables that come into a play that the best thing really is to just test it and see uh, what each machine gets for you. But in the end, it's, you know, 9.9 times out of 10, it's definitely worth doing. Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine the manufacturer probably, especially for smaller miners, just wants to lock them into a, a purchasing cycle where if you're able to extend the the lifetime of of the individual machines yeah. you're just b- buying miners less often think of the uh, iphone batteries and how shitty they've gotten over uh, right. <laughs> the last years just so oh wow my iphone batteries only last like a year now right when the next right. model comes out that's interesting planned obsolescence we're trying to get away from it okay <laughs> all of you minor manufacturers out there but 
it is fascinating and it adds to the i guess excitement of this industry is uh, having to jailbreak these machines and tweak them and uh geek out as much efficiency as you can eke out excuse me not geek out but you can geek out over it as well uh and uh so uh, like how how much of your business is driven by working on this firmware specifically and obviously stratum v2's been um a topic of conversation something you guys have been working on as well i'd like to get an update on that and um potentially uh ways in which you guys are going to expand your product offering i know you hinted at something in 2021 we probably can't talk about but other things outside of the firmware um to help your profitability at brains and slush yeah definitely so on the first question um uh, there's been a huge push by me to shift as much of the revenue over to the firmware because one it's more sticky um, as I said before, miners are much more happy to pay it because of the profit uplift they experience from it. And also the previous, um, uh, things I had to say about mining pools and where I see them headed. Um, and it's been going really well so far, uh, for the first, you know, six or seven months of its existence, it was only S nines, but that took off really well. Um, partly because of the incentives we offered on the pool, if you used it in conjunction with slush pool. Um, and then more recently, in the last month, we started releasing some of the S17 models um, as like a beta version, and the full release is coming out very soon. And that's showing some good progress so far. And we even kind of upped the ante on the deal where if you do use Brains OS Plus on your machines, you have 0% pool fees, just to add some nice little juicy incentives for people interested. Um, and yeah, it, it, so it, it's driving more and more of our revenue actually as each month goes by, which was the goal. So I'm very happy about that. Um, and then for your second topic of V2, V2 is actually supported now and it's uh, also supported through Brains OS if you run it on your machines um, on the open source version and the plus version, uh, especially on the open source version, you get some pretty insane like data load transfer reductions like two to three times smaller. Um, it has a lot of the security features of preventing middleman attacks and people from potentially stealing your hash rate. Um, and then we actually have a grant through Square Crypto, um, Jack Dorsey's company, that uh, allows people to work on V2 if they're interested. All they need to do is go over to Square Crypto's grant page and put together a proposal. And if it's approved by the Square Crypto team, then they get a bunch of money to work on V2 and help develop it with us. Um, so I guess the kind of overall update on V2 is that most of the features and security efficiency are implemented and running now in some form. Um, and then the decentralized aspect of job negotiation, which is probably the feature that is the most talked about and quote unquote most controversial for some reason. Um, that is what's going to be primarily developed through uh, our own efforts, which is currently underway, and with uh, the help of the grants. Um, it's an open source project for anyone interested or wanting to implement it in their system or pool. Um, and then what was your last question you had? That was it. I think that, I think that was just Stratum V2 update. But to dive deeper to what you just said, like, yeah, what, let's go over the controversy of so people in Jan and Pavel and I talked about this the first time they were on, but the, the 
when they were still thinking of Stratum V2, we were talking about it in the context of better hash. And this is when they presented that, like, hey, we're actually working on something else that we think is better because uh, better hash has a flaw or a perceived flaw that uh, individual miners constructing the block within the pool will not uh, uh, will not fine tune for the highest amount of potential fees that could be uh, accumulated in a block, and that is uh, people are still even knocking stratum v two for that as well. Like, how can you uh, guarantee that that happens? Uh, and the other miners contributing to this strata B2 pool will uh, be making less profit than they potentially could, especially as it pertains to getting the most fees per block. Yeah. Um, so you're asking specifically about the block templates and basically... Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, I understand some people's concern about maybe, oh, it's not going to be the absolute most profitable block if not if the most profitable transactions aren't included in the block um i don't see this being a real issue though and in part one um when you consider the reward spread out across all the miners on a pool if something were to be you know a couple bips or even one to two percent less profitable from the block as a whole after that spread out to all the miners on that specific block it would take a long, long time to start noticing any drop in revenue as a result of that. Um, also, for the most part, because miners are still incentivized, uh, excuse me, incentivized to do so, um, they will pick the transactions that and fine tune the block templates to choose the transactions that would be, show them or give them the most rewards. Um, and then thirdly, uh, I think people are unfortunately underestimating the uh, future of mining in places like North America and Europe and their incentive and legal obligation to exclude certain transactions, um, whether they come from, you know, North Korea, Iran, something like that. Whether or not that's actually possible and sustainable in the long term is another question. And people may be incentivized to include the most profitable block templates anyways, just because um, they would be at a disadvantage to the people that did choose to do so versus if they chose not to over a longer period of time. Um, it's hard to see to your previous point that you've brought up about like a KYC AML pool. It's hard to see a pool like that really seem attractive and competitive to anyone besides uh, very specific institutions that would be hyper concerned over things like that, like where they're how they're pooling their hash rate with other people. Um, but that's not even necessarily a huge issue, I think, because especially on PPS models and uh, you, the the pool in effect is a buyer of the hash rate, and so they buy hash rate from a bunch of people and mine the blocks. Um, they collect, right. Uh, basically 100% of the reward, but then redistribute it to the people they're buying it off of minus whatever fee they're charging them. Um, and then the PPLNS and scoring model, the uh, hash rate and work is pulled together completely anonymously. And there's no way really to trace where the origin of it is from. And it's not really uh, the miner interacting, say, with a miner in North Korea 
but rather once the work's mixed up on the servers, it's it's not really like you're doing business with an entity like that or facil facilitating any transaction for them. So it's not really clear how it's going to play out. Um, but I can see just mounting concerns over regulators and how they're going to interact with it. Um, but in, in terms of V2, what you originally asked me about, I don't really see any huge valid criticisms out there besides the fact that you know maybe someone would choose a block template that wasn't as profitable if they mined the block. Um, I don't see that as a huge concern or a big downside moving forward. Interesting. Yeah, the whole because right the that slick SLIC or whatever oh, that, God. Weak, that, that weak attempt to uh, try to force a coalition of miners to to force KYC AML on their uh, customers, even though it was a weak attempt, it did sort of uh, illuminate some of the potential vectors that these types will uh, attempt to to attack. And like so, you, they would depend on a centralized entity in Slush KYCing all. Uh, of the miners within their pool, but that's if they're constructing the template themselves and they're actually adding the block and then distributing the rule, the reward centrally, uh, most importantly, the distribution of the reward. Uh, you could reward, you could argue that's a money transmission service or whatever they call it. I don't even fucking know. But uh, Jeremy Rubin presented an interesting idea that would need op check template verify to be enabled to make it happen the, the idea of a decentralized mining pool where you have a bunch of individual miners pointing hash rate this decentralized pool each is constructing a block template the one that mines the block uh, then distributes it to the other miners in that decentralized pool but each miner in that pool could mine a block and then they each have to distribute it individually to the other miners in the decentralized pool and that a situa situation like that makes kyc aml almost too burdensome like we have each individual having to kyc each other individual in a decentralized pool it just seems uh, logistically impossible so getting to that point seems like something that should be a goal for for mining pools or just miners in general i haven't heard too much about that and i honestly i just i don't know much about uh, that specific project you mentioned at all but I, a couple things jumped to my mind um one every time someone tries to attempt a pool that say um, is decentralized or maybe the pool never for even a second acts as a custodian it just it just goes straight from the coinbase into the miner's wallet you immediately run into scalability issues um it's not really easy to facilitate this when you're talking about any serious volume of hash rate. I think, you know, if you're just talking about a couple hundred petahash, it could be fine. But as you scale up into the exahash territory, it's not feasible from based on my conversations with uh, some of the people at Slushpool. And then also, um, as, you know, mining gets more and more consolidated into these larger entities after each halving, it would seem easier at that point if a pool like you just described popped up for the regulators in each country to go to the people they know who are mining and double checking where they're sending their hash rate. Um, uh, so I'm not sure, like it seems valid for 
a world where retail is still very prominent in mining and they'd be able to take advantage of that smaller operations but uh the further and further the network ages the more and more economies of scale are rewarded in mining so it may be much easier in the future to sort of um, monitor where it's going yeah yeah just dump that link from jeremy in your telegram chat i'd be interested to see lovely your thoughts on that after that but um you mentioned uh, PPS too. It's actually a, a subject I wanted to touch on. Paper share. If somebody in my mentions complaining about paper share, like if you um, are directing hash at slush for X amount of time, and uh, then your your miners go down for some reason, and then slush mines a block while your miners are down, uh, you may not you probably miss out on that, that, that part of the reward, but you guys are taking on risk as well. So I think, uh, explaining PPS, how it works, why you guys decided to do the payouts in in that fashion, uh, would be educational for the freaks out there. Yeah. So we actually don't do PPS. We do our own scoring mechanism. Uh, PPS is paid per share, but the, the, what you described is a possibility in our system but it's very one-sided perspective of looking at it because the opposite could just as well as happen where you only turn on your miners for 20 to 30 minutes and then we mine a block, which is equally likely to happen. Um, and if your scoring hash rate is been turned on or rather scaling up for 30 minutes after your real hash rate is flipped on, then you're already pretty much at the average max scoring hash rate you're going to get and you're going to receive a much more, uh, you're going to receive a much larger portion of the block um, then you maybe should have because you've only been contributing work to the pool for 20 to 30 minutes before the block was found whereas maybe someone with less hash rate or maybe almost the same amount of hash rate has been doing it and still gets a similar reward to you so I think it's kind of uh, naturally people especially miners want to take the the perspective that um, they see as them potentially losing money but it could be equally beneficial to them in the opposite direction, which is is never really addressed, um, right? Like everyone's really quiet and super happy when we're running at like 120% luck. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we never hear any complaints about that. Um, but the moment we dip under 100, it's like, oh, you know, what's happening? Um, right. So, you know, when you, when you look at it on a longer time frame, there's no issue. The payouts are still the same as a PPS pool. Um, if it's just a matter of question of whether you're willing to take on uh, short-term variants for lower fees. And uh, there's also the fact now that if you use our firmware in conjunction with it, the infrastructure is literally provided to you at zero cost to you. So it's basically a question of uh, how much short-term variance you're willing to take on um, and how important that is to your operations. Like some people may need extremely stable cash flow on the short term uh, for various reasons, whether it be reporting to a specific board that wants to see that or to maybe cloud mine, right? Because if you buy like a month contract, um, it could affect the results at the end of the month. It could be affected really well because you've bought a contract for a month and we get, you know, 110% luck that month and you get way more than you expected, but it could equally go the other way down to like 95% and then you get 5% less than you're expected. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, 
like all the formulas, how it's paid out, how it's you know measured and processed, it's all on our website. It's all public information. We publish the hash rate proofs as well, so you don't have to trust us, but can verify yourself that you're getting the rewards you're supposed to be getting. Um, it's just really a matter of preference. Do you want to pay less and take on some short-term variance, or do you want to pay more and uh, not experience that variance but receive lower income in the long term? Yeah. Yeah, and no, I confused the uh, the feedback there. Compare, he was comparing slush to a PPS pool. Um, mm. But yeah, no, thank you for that that explanation. I guess that leads me to another question. Just looking at, I got my slush dashboard up right now. Looking at the uh, uh, the amount of scoring hash rate the pool has. Like, is there a minimum threshold that you guys look for? Um, that you try to like hold the line at to make sure that you're you're mining enough enough blocks to keep your customers happy um just as much as possible really um uh, there's there's no real line that like a hard line that we discuss that we can drop below um but it's always just pretty much get as much hash rate as possible thus the miner experiences less variance and our revenue increases from the pool um and that's something that's basically always happening in the background so yeah and do you have, do you have things like Net, Nice Hash that that do profit switching, and you see them adding a bunch of hash rate and falling off? Uh, we do not do. We do not do profit switching. Uh, no, I, I know you don't do, but like other like things like Nice Hash that do, it may decide to mine Bitcoin and point their hash at at slush or something. Oh, okay. Like that. So you mean like other people using coin switchers and one when they yes. BTC they pointed at slush well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there there are some cases that happened. I know before having, there was uh, sometimes our for like a couple months, our hash rate would fluctuate up and down on a regular basis, like five to six hundred petahash, because there was a miner doing just that. They were like purchasing five to six hundred petahash on nice hash, and then trying to devise some formula to, to game the luck on the pool in an attempt to only mine as we had the, a more like increased chance of finding a block and then not mine with us as we, um, as they thought there are chances of finding a block decrease. So, I mean, it was interesting, good for them for, for trying. I'm not sure how well it worked out for them. Um, but yeah, that was definitely interesting. I remember uh, reaching out to them going like, Hey, we noticed some really like strange activity from your account. Is there anything we can help you with or any support we can provide? And they very happily just explained what they were doing and what they were trying to achieve. Um, and yeah, I guess that's the, the main example that sticks out in my mind, but there are people that do it on a smaller scale as well. Yeah. No, that would be interesting. Like, do you think that's a wise strategy at the end of the day at scale trying to time? No, um, especially with that much hash rate. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> it seems pretty intense to be doing it with like five to 600 petahash, but, uh, it may be a fun experiment or just like a game to play if you want to, you know, throw 500 terahash at it or something and you have a much larger operation and you're just doing it as a hobby. Um, but I don't recommend people do that at all. It's, uh, especially with some of the, um, products that are available on the market now, it seems uh, much better just to, uh, mine Bitcoin, no, uh, within a small range, what you expect to get paid out on it. And um, I mean, personally, you have to look at the asset 
as well, right? Like when I look at Bitcoin, that would be the only thing I'd want to mine. Um, I know there's profit switching algorithms out there that allow you to get more Bitcoin, but then it comes from an exchange. It doesn't come from the Coinbase, which has some implications as well. And if you're talking about longing Bitcoin, which is kind of what miners do naturally, I wouldn't really want to long another asset, especially when you have to put, in many cases, just millions and millions and millions of dollars into these operations. I would not feel comfortable you know, naturally longing any asset besides Bitcoin. And and mechanically, like, what's the process of moving that hash or like how much time does it take? And uh, like, is it like a burdensome process? Um, from what I understand, no, especially with V2, right? zero time backend switching. Um, it lets you install failover pools in case the pool you're connected to server goes down, it automatically just switches to the backup pool. But um, it doesn't seem like it's that arduous or burdensome for people to do it. Maybe if an individual miner were to try and develop an algorithm like that for themselves to use. But if you go to one of the many services out there that have profit switchers, whether it be a pool, whether it be purely a profit switching service or any other person that's developed it, um, it's pretty hands-off from the miner's perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The tough part is uh, timing the cells, right? Because you're switching between generally BTC, BCH, and BSV, um, which is only one component. The other component is after you've mined, each of the specific asset is uh, quickly selling it on the exchange to convert it to BTC, um, which makes it a bit more complicated when you start thinking about liquidity and which exchange you use and how quickly you can sell it, things like that. Slippage comes into play, I would imagine. It's Yeah, it seems like a headache. Another question I have is, so when you guys mine a block, distribute the the award, award reward. Um, you're not getting an award; you're getting a reward. Uh, how do you guys take into consideration the the current congestion on chain, uh, distributing actual rewards to individual miners, like taking the fee market into consideration? Um, the can you repeat the question? So when you mine a block, when a miner within slush pool gets a block, yep. you have to distribute that reward. Is it automatically, like is that Coinbase automatically set up or do you have an additional tra batch transaction that sends reward out to the individuals within the pool? Oh, okay, so you're asking if, if it ever gets into like a slush pool wallet before it goes to the miners. Yes. Yeah, um, yes, it does. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's almost impossible to operate a pool at any real scale. Uh, currently anyways, and distribute it directly from the Coinbase into the miner's wallet. But depending on what you're reading, what circle you're in, there's right like quote unquote virgin coins, which there are a lot of challenges to just philosophically because then you're challenging like the fungibility of Bitcoin. But um, uh, And then there's what people call clean coins or you can equate the two, which is there's only one hop from the Coinbase or rather two hops, I should say, from the Coinbase to the pool provi provider to the miner itself. And generally, the coins that go from the Coinbase to the pool provider directly to the miner are seen as, quote-unquote, like the, the freshly minted or, or clean coins. Whether you subscribe to that or not is another question, but um, people that are concerned with regulation and compliance definitely subscribe to it. Um, and then, if, especially when you know the pool's wallet, you can easily demonstrate that it just went from Coinbase to wallet to yours. And so there's no risk of 
having it mixed in a batch or maybe the coins coming from North Korea or something like that, as I said before. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, quote unquote virgin coins are Sharia compliant, aren't they? Isn't that a... Yeah. I remember when I first read that, uh, some years ago when I was working in Beijing and, uh, not, not Sharia, but halal. Uh, halal. Uh, when They're not haram. Imams declared that Bitcoin was halal, and so that uh, it could be safely used by Islamic institutions. I just thought that was so fascinating that here we have um, this brand new digital currency or digital gold, however you want to look at it, that's sort of uh, growing pretty quickly, especially the mining sector. And then you have this, you know, almost 2,000-year-old institution or 1,500-year-old <laughs> institution <laughs> declaring it halal under, like, religious scripture and saying it's, a, like, God sanctions its use and things like that. It's, it's just so interesting, the crazy world we live in. Right, right. Do you subscribe? To, I don't subscribe to the virgin coins. They're all tainted with fees, right? Um, I, I don't really subscribe to it personally. I only subscribe to it insofar as uh, the, the people willing to pay a premium for them you know if it's real to them uh that's good for me but personally i don't subscribe to uh you know the whole virgin versus non-virgin coin thing yeah all bitcoins are, should be fungible yeah how big is that premium are people willing those people willing to pay uh it completely depends um we, we always get requests on like a i mean m most of them just go completely ignored because they just seem so shady like the other day I was getting an email. It's like, hey, we're, these these investors are looking to buy some coins from miners. They want 5,000 BTC over the course of two weeks. I'm like, okay, yeah, because someone that's looking to purchase 5,000 BTC uh, the, over the course of two weeks directly from miners anonymously, they're, they're probably real good people to do business with and put ourselves at risk like that, you know? So most of it just goes ignored and I roll my eyes. Um, but when you look at some of the more serious people, they're like, hey, we're this trading firm out of, Lucerne, Switzerland, or something, and they identify themselves and all that. Uh, the premiums are generally like a couple percent. It's nothing insane, right? A lot of people that don't know too much about it or don't have too much experience are like, oh, you can get 8% premiums on, on version coins, which is just not the case at all. Um, if you can get any premium at all, it's probably closer to like 1% to 3%. 3% is You're probably getting a better premium trading P2P OTC like behind the scenes um yeah it's fascinating stuff there's so many fascinating topics you can discuss in bitcoin like we're only talking about mining pools right now like what else outside of <laughs> your your job and what you do excites you about bitcoin well just one last thing on the the version coin thing like we see more and more hash rate instruments coming out and when you can just buy physically delivered hash rate it kind of makes purchasing a virgin coin seem irrelevant to me because if you can just get the hash rate physically delivered you get those coins anyways especially when you can buy them oftentimes at a discount to the btc spot price so why would you pay a premium for a virgin coin um so i don't i don't see them being even like a real concept that people pursue in the future i see it as will just be people pursuing hash rate instead of these uh so-called clean coins um but outside of uh outside of mining or inside mining no, but well, now you just brought up an interesting topic of hash rate futures and forwards <laughs> contracts that I want to dive into. Like that is like a like buying future hash, but engaging in a contract with a miner so that they deliver hashes that will be solved in the future. Um, 
and the the Bitcoin rewards that uh, come with that hash uh, to be delivered in the future. It's pretty revolutionary for the mining industry, correct? Yeah, evolutionary. So. And I think uh, I think Leo Zhang is um, shout out to Leo your alchemy of hash power stuff. So it's super interesting to read. Um, he did a really good job at describing what you could potentially see in the future with some investors or even just uh, data centers themselves and how they would structure like a hash rate portfolio and how they would hedge some of their operational risk of, uh, you know, running a Bitcoin mine and how they can kind of offload some of that operational risk into financial risk for people taking on and bearing some of it, uh, which is really interesting. And one of the ways they can sort of hedge, right, is to sign some contract in a forwards market with another individual that is interested in purchasing the hash rate. And this could be at a discount of some sort. I know that it's still very like early, excuse me, and, and uh, rudimentary today. And that some of the discounts that buyers are asking for for some of these products are just absolutely ridiculous. Like personally, as a power miner, I would never enter into any such contract because you know some people are asking well below 90% of BTC spot price for some of these forwards contracts. Um, and it'll take uh, much more developed and liquid marketplaces before we start seeing a forwards contract uh, start you know, approaching much closer to the spot price of BTC. It's, it's the noon bell here. Uh, <laughs> to let the city know it's, it's noon. Thank you. Thank you, City Council, for letting me know what time. It just—it's so funny. It's like a—it's like a New World Cathedral bell, right? So I'm over here in Europe, and right. I hear the bells ringing every hour, everywhere, and over in Jersey, it's doo doo. <laughs> they're they're uh, they're uh, they're fainter, but there are church bells in the background going off right now. As oh, well. Okay, <laughs> it's reminding me of like, oh shit, I gotta get back to class in second grade when I hear that, <laughs> right? It's uh, for for my niece and nephew. They know it as the lunch bell. Once that goes off, it's time for lunch. Um, but yeah, so like I, I just see uh, markets developing around hash rate and providing better hedges for miners. Because I mean, when you look at some of uh, the larger miners or public companies that enter into some of these hedging instruments, they're kind of in a bind in many cases. So if they take on uh, loans for equipment financing or something like that then they're kind of restricted by these really aggressive interest rates on the loans. And then if they want to sell more shares, say as a public company, they then have to dilute the shares of their company, which isn't good either. And so with the development of something like I just described, you could really free yourself of some of those uh, burdens and just uh, enter into a trade with a party interested in buying the hash rate without exposing yourself to some loan that charges you 15% interest or um, 18, 18 in some instances. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, and, uh, or, you know, diluting the, the shares of your company, which is pretty destructive too. Um, so uh, there's every incentive in the world for miners to participate in something like that, especially some of these new hedging instruments as they, become more liquid and more sophisticated. What I'm more interested in is the buy side. Um, it seems that the market for the buy side is still pretty underdeveloped. And I don't have any doubts that it exists and will continue to grow.
but I'm really interested to see, you know, who these buyers turn out to be the biggest ones, you know, are they going to be, yeah, there's a bunch of noise around Paul Tudor Jones buying Bitcoin some months ago. Are we going to see people like him enter into hash rate contracts and get hash rate instead of Bitcoin as well? Is it going to be mainly restricted to miners and uh, institutional investors that currently invest in mining already? Or are we going to see, you know, people like Fidelity or um, these more legacy institutions uh, start participating in mining by never actually purchasing a machine to begin with, but just starts purchasing hash rate as a part of their portfolio. I know Fidelity does mining currently, but there are plenty of, uh, you know, maybe something like micro strategy instead of just buying it on the spot market, you can buy some hash rate contracts um, and, you know, stack up part of your reserve as a company in BTC over the course of a year through some hash rate you've purchased. Yeah. No, Leo and I were actually talking about that. The, the slippage that came with micro strategies buying strategy uh, could have been alleviated with a, something like a hash rates forward um, or futures contract. And it's so fascinating how these contracts will work to the mechanics of them. Cause it's just so much smoother than what you experience in the traditional financial system. So like, as like, say you, as a minor, I engage in a forward contract with a family office. They give us a bunch of cash up front so that we can build out our operations and plug the machines in, deliver the hash. You could easily set it up with slush pool. Say, Hey, we have, we're going to need a sub pool that directs, the rewards towards these addresses that are owned by the family office that that uh, bought our hash months ago. It just seems like a, a very seamless process. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I mean, of course, there are risks to that too, right? If you uh, buy all the BTC OTC as MicroStrategy did, you may be exposed to some um, slippage in some cases, especially or if some of it is bought on exchanges, but. Uh, then if there's any short-term price appreciation, you get to enjoy the benefits of that. Whereas if you enter into a, you know, 365 day contract for hash rate um, and there's massive hash rate amounts, you know, coming online and difficulties shooting up. And there's also price appreciation you could have potentially lost out. But another way to look at it is just, a, you know, a really solid DCA over a long period of time. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, and that's another big question that needs to be figured out these contracts like what is the necessary like both parties have to meet on the table and decide it how much discount the miner is willing to to sell that hash at and the family office on the other end has to weigh the risk of more hash rate joining the network uh, throughout the duration of the contract they've engaged in hmm. i'm excited <laughs> to see it develop though because i think it'll make cloud mining largely irrelevant and people can just engage in the exchange of hash rate without having to worry about, you know, some of these opaque deals and getting screwed over and often. Many yeah. Controversial topic, cloud mining. Some people think it's coming back with a vengeance. Others think it's still uh, scammy. <laughs> are you, are you in the latter camp? I mean, I, it's not a, I don't, I don't think it's a scam. I just think it's uh, um, I think the purchaser, of a cloud mining contract almost never comes out ahead. So not a scam, but maybe something that uh, businesses willingly offer knowing that their client will probably never receive as much benefit as just buying BTC, which you mm -hmm. could question, of course, right? Like they're not doing anything illegal or something like that. 
um, in that case, right? If they're just operating a cloud mining platform legitimately. Um, but I think that cloud mining only really gets going in pretty significant bull markets. Um, so I think that'll be the case until uh, kind of the things we talked about just now become a bit more developed and widespread. And then the benefits of doing, you know, participating in that will become extremely clear very quickly to people that have traditionally bought cloud mining, especially when you see the, the profitability at the end of say like a month contract in comparison to one another. And that will force cloud mining contracts to um, sort of lower its pricing and thus margins to the point. And they may sur survive for a little bit after that, but I think eventually uh, many of the people offering cloud mining or many of the miners that have large data centers that offer cloud mining or hash rate contracts will just eventually opt into something like a marketplace. Yeah. seems like a very annoying business to build too. A lot of, a lot of moving parts. The cloud mining? Uh, yeah. I don't know. We've never, yeah. we've never done any cloud mining operations, so I, I wouldn't know. But um, I imagine like... it's pretty crazy because it's mostly retail that's interested in it, right? It's not. Luxury. Yeah, exactly. So it just so you got like a customer service headache that <laughs> seems like seems like a, a task I would not want to take on personally. Um, Oh, people find my email and, and Telegram all the time. Uh, people with like, you know, maybe one or two S9s. And they're like, hey, how can I partner with you? Or like, how can I get discounts on my, on my, uh, you know, <laughs> like 45 terahash. Um, <laughs> I can't even, I can't even imagine that happening at a, you know, massive scale. Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to need you to 1,000x your operation and then we can talk. <laughs> well, it's just, right, like, you know, bless them for uh, for doing their part, but I think so many people are just don't realize what mining has sort of become at this point and the scale it operates on. And, you know, people are ordering two months' worth of the manufacturer's supply now, right? The You look at the Horizon Kinetics core deal and they bought almost 18,000 S19s. Um, uh, you know, which I think is like 1.42 exahash uh, all at once, which is something that, you know, just didn't happen before. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like a little less than a third of Slush Bowl right now. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Yeah. But we'll uh, get them. Don't worry. Well, yeah, I guess <laughs> so Slush has, again, been a stalwart in the mining industry. First pool still around the pool industry has a lot of churn. How do you guys position yourselves to, to sort of stay away from that churn and, and stay, keep the lights on? We've already talked about the different, um, different revenue streams you're creating, but just in terms of like the ruthless nature of the mining pool industry specifically, um, how I think, and I think slush actually, at least me personally, I love slush because first pool, it's always been, altruist i don't want to say altruistic but true to bitcoin's ethos and i think you guys get i don't want to say goodwill but people want to point their hash at slush because of the the history of the stewardship that you guys have uh, showed to the network so a question is like moving forward like do you see you guys uh, the percentage of overall hash rate rising uh, because a combination of people liking slush because of the stewardship plus the the benefits of the product suite that you offer. 
Um, I see it primarily developing through like the vertically integrated product suite that we offer. Um, while there are some hardcore smaller miners that only mine with Sludge Pool because it's the only Western pool, because we're the only ones that are transparent about everything, like publishing the hash rate proofs, um, you know, keeping true to Bitcoin is the only SHA-256 coin we mine um, from being the first pool, from, uh, you know, voicing uh, some of our founders voicing their opinions in the, the you know the block size wars back in 2016 2017 and um offering open source projects and the uh, amp lead and covert asic boost thing i mentioned before so we, that does bear some goodwill um as anyone would expect it to but uh you know it, it's interesting it, it's kind of a meme as well when you look at some of the larger miners especially when you look at some of the narratives coming out of places like North America, where they say, oh, we want uh, to bring X percentage of the global network hash rate over to North America, um, which is a pretty lofty goal in many cases, especially when the figures are above 10% of the global network hash rate in a single facility. Um, but then they direct that hash rate to uh, a pool that isn't in North America which means the terminus point for the hash rate actually isn't North America, regardless of the machines being there. Um, and right, it's a nice it's a nice story to tell investors and to shape your marketing narrative online. But in the end, uh, you know, as you said, it's a cutthroat business and they're only going to go to uh, the areas that offer the lowest fees. Um, like I, I know for a fact that every single large miner in North America that's, that has a press release about this strong, you know, North America vision um, directs, you know, a sizable portion, if not all of their hash rate to pools in China. So I don't, I don't take it too seriously. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I can disclose. I think, I don't think anybody would care. I mean, we point, yeah, uh, eh, I'm not going to disclose it, but <laughs> it is, uh, well, and so like, do you think there will be competitive pools um no we use slush i think we've said it publicly before i'm thinking in my mind uh but uh now we do that because it's the best option at the point like there is no north american pool that's as profitable you see that developing would you guys ever like do another pool outside of czech republic or i mean we we've yeah we've definitely thought about that um uh Generally, it's not a problem for our North American miners, especially some of the ones that are, say, publicly traded because of our transparency. Uh, you know, auditors from PwC, from EY, they actually all generally recommend that these companies use us because of our willingness to, um, you know, uh, open up and participate in something like a full audit. And this is very, very helpful for people whose companies are traded on a stock exchange so that's something that uh, we always have in our corner so we in that respect we wouldn't necessarily see a need to open up something in north america especially if we're already um uh, providing all the necessary information that we can to make it these my these uh companies you know comfortably and securely keep mining with us and you know none of none of this ever is disclosing private information of of other miners, most of which we don't even have, right? Because you can sign up anonymously to the pool and start using it. Um, it's only really for VIP clients that we speak to on a regular basis that we have any sort of information on. 
um, which is necessary, right? If they want special terms or conditions, um, or if they contact us looking to help them out in an audit they're undergoing, right? So there needs to be some exchange of information or communication on that front when it comes to that. But so I guess there's no real barrier for us to protect our users' privacy while uh, allowing some of these companies with more restrictions to operate on us. So we can do that from Europe uh, fairly easily. And, you know, EU restrictions and compliance is no joke either. So we have our, our fair share of fun dealing with that. Um, but I, I think the only way opening up a sort of another pool or like a proxy pool or an agent pool, as it's often called in another area, would be to take advantage of some local legislation or some tight-knit community that generally uh, does something like, you know, national within its borders. I know there's some countries that where the government have legalized mining and they're, they're offering tax incentives for people that use services or companies within their own borders of like upwards of 15%. So that creates some incentives. But then you have to evaluate, well, if we do set this up locally and have this team locally represent us, Naturally, we would have to give them a part of the proceeds and would it even be worth the time and resources put into it? Um, and at that point, it's still just using slush pool because we'd be signing the blocks and the whole backend infrastructure would be us anyways. So why not just have a rep or two in that locale to push for use of slush pool? And especially with stuff like V2 and job negotiation, if that catches on the, the need for a pool, like a ton of pools spread out across the world uh, is diminished significantly. So. Yeah. That would be a great place to get to. Cause that's what I talked about with Ethan Vera when he was on the podcast. The fact like you alluded to like people were like, Oh, we're going to distribute hash, but a lot of the big pools, most of the hash rate uh, as dictated by pools is still in China. Oh yeah. I mean, good um, luck with that. Right. Like uh, when I was, I think it's kind of funny. It's kind of cute when these guys are like, we're trying to start a new pool and we want to, we want you to help us do it because we have, you know, 50 petahash and we're going to take the market by storm in North America because of all our connections. It's like, this is not going to be lucrative for you guys, right? Like the, the, the fee structures and the business is so competitive at this point that I really, it just demonstrates that you don't really know what you're getting into if you're making statements like that. Yeah. And that, brings us back to the point made earlier is like will a North American mining pool be brought to fruition via a miner or something like an exchange like Coinbase I hate to say it but like, they're probably more incentivized to do something like that than kind of worrying considering the uh, uh, their recent cozying up to regulatory yeah. bodies in the IRS and the United States can you use can use a better example like river.com river financial or something like that um, <laughs> um well i mean there's an there's an opportunity i think uh, like we discussed before that some people that get into mining are going to be required or demand of themselves to enter into some sort of kyc aml pool i don't know how much that demand is currently and i think if those pools do show up soon that they won't take off or gain any traction for quite some time um and the only way I see it making sense or being a viable move is if you have an extensive network of miners already and a massive amount of hash rate yourself, and you're not intending for the pool to be any real source of like, you know, revenue stream or main line of profit for your business. 
um, and you're just solely setting it up to leverage other services or products that you want to offer the miners. Um, because in the end, you know, all the newest pools set up are uh, PPS pools, which require a large reserve to start up, right? Um, generally, you don't want to do anything less than 1,000 BTC in reserve. Um, and there's a fairly large percentage chance that, that it could be depleted if you don't have the best luck within like a 365-day period, not talking about even operational costs at all. And then on top of that, you're entering into a market that, as we said, have, has already well, well into its uh, race to the bottom in fees. So it's not like you're going to be able to convince some large miners to come on and pay a premium for the uh, reduction in variance to them. But in fact, that you're going to be stuck paying them the what they can get on the market, which is extremely low right now. Um, so your margins are going to be razor thin to begin with. And as soon as anyone sniffs out that you're doing this, they're going to uh, be seeking out your customers. Yeah, yeah. It's ruthless, ruthless capitalism. Yeah, Bitcoin is br bringing it to the world. Good stuff. It's beautiful to it's see. Fun. Right? Never a boring day. Never, never a boring day. So now we can finally get to outside of mining. Like, what is exciting you? Obviously, we we talked about Bitmax before we hit record. Let's pour some out for Bitmax. Yeah, still, exactly. Uh, <laughs> still reeling. That's uh, uh, are the regulators trying to clamp down? Will Bitcoin survive into the future? Can it get over the hurdles put forth? I've Who never knows? been concerned over Bitcoin survivability. I'm super bullish long-term on it. But, uh, I mean, kind of like what I mentioned before uh, the podcast started, I don't think anyone is shocked that something like this happened. I think it was just a matter of when and which exchange, and I think it'll probably happen to more. Um, but outside of mining, God, outside of mining, I like history. That's fun. Um, as you probably could tell from the random 17th century spiel about <laughs> a mint being developed in New England. Um, uh, outside of mining, yeah, just reading, relaxing as much as possible, which isn't going so well. I did just get back from Portugal. That was fun. But right now, i got to be honest, my my life is pretty consumed with Bitcoin and all things mining. It really kind of drags you into it in many respects but um yeah i mean the beer's good in prague I had my fair share of yeah. that yeah i was meaning like outside i wasn't even meaning outside of bitcoin outside of mining like within bitcoin are you excited about like <laughs> anything going on in lightning uh dlcs how sad is that you're like what do you what do you like outside of bitcoin i'm like uh <laughs> cheese <laughs> free freaks I'd god no all right. Edward's a huge cheese enthusiast. To all you freaks out there, as Marty calls you, cheese is the devil's food, and it should never be consumed. It's the most disgusting thing on the face of the planet, and it's probably the thing I miss most about living in China, is never having to say, please, no cheese, on that. I, I vehemently disagree. Cheese is a gift from God. A, a gift, a no gift from the bacterial value, gods. Awful for you. Tastes like garbage. You know, do I need to go on? It's stinky most of the time. Terrible. Oh, I love that. I mean, how could you travel, travel like Spain, Portugal, and not get get some get some cheese with your jamon? Like, just sip it. Seems on like blasphemy. Seafood, man, it's the way to go. Some mussels, some lamb chops, shellfish. Oh, ooh. 
actually had paella for dinner last night. Lobster, clam, shrimp. Delicious. Damn. Did you have any, did you have any paella when you were in uh, Portugal? Uh, it's some crackling skin, like suckling pork. Ooh. Really nice with like some sweet potato puree. And and uh, I've never drank so much wine in my life just because the beer is so garbage over there. I do not, like it finishes like rubbing alcohol. Do not recommend Superbach. Or Portuguese beer, and in fact, the Portuguese do not recommend their own beer. So, just try to uh, stay away from it if you can. Do they not serve Imperial there? Either. Uh, no, I just saw Superbach everywhere. I know they have two different. They only really have two brands in Portugal, but I just saw Superbach pretty much everywhere I went. Um, and coming from the Czech Republic, the beer mecca of the world, it was a real disturbing change of pace. Yeah, yeah. Were you sipping on Riojas? Or mainly green wine? Uh, so actually, the farm I grew up on in, in California is half of it got turned into a vineyard when I was about like eight or ten years old. And uh, so I've been probably dipping into that juice a little bit earlier than I should have uh, growing up. And it's uh, the reds are always by far my favorite. Like the really yeah. strong uh, Pinots or Zinfandels. Uh, Cabernet is always really good, but a lot yeah, of fun uh, memories from a kid stomping on the grapes and doing the little parties like that. Yeah, the uh, the wife and I were thinking about a trip to Sonoma in January. We're, we're a big fan of wine country, California wine country specifically. You should check out San Luis Obispo. It's uh, There's a ton of wine grapes there that have been planted in the last 10 to 15 years because of extra demand. And... Um, Generally, what they do is they start making their, all their own wine now. But before, when there have been dry seasons or droughts in Napa, there's still a ton of demand for their wine. So what they'll do is they'll go search throughout California's central coast to purchase the grapes. And then, of course, that drives up the grapes massively. You can charge like two to three times the price you normally would. So there's not a whole lot of central coast wines during those times. But in fact, the wines in Sonoma and Napa for like a good five-year period we're all coming from different parts of california because of some drought interesting i wonder if the fire the fires this year will be affecting that market as well oh undoubtedly it's been absolutely horrible. i've been monitoring that a little bit from from across the pond and it really kind of bummed me out when i saw that it was hitting some of the national parks because i just remembered you know those were our pretty much vacations exclusively growing up was going to camp in sequoia national park or Gurley creek or any of the other various you know, Big Sur, the beautiful uh, redwoods of California and the Pacific Northwest. It's uh, it's a shame that a lot of it burnt down. But the good news, right, the, the silver lining is that the largest of the sequoia trees are generally fire resistant and a lot of them survived. So there still remain a lot of the five to eight to, uh, yeah, five to eight thousand year old trees. It's crazy. What's your solution for the forest fires? Everybody's throwing their hat in the ring. Is it uh, is it land management? Is Oof. it controlled burns? Um, well, I mean, is controlled it... burns are always important. I mean, Native Americans were doing controlled burns for, you know, thousands of years in North America uh, to great effect. So I'd say controlled burns should always be present. And, um, I mean, just being extra cautious and taking extra steps as a forest service, as individual citizens, as cities to um, just be hyper aware during dry seasons and droughts has, has been the case recently because, um, you know, no matter how much forage management and controlled burns you do, 
when you've had a dry couple of years, the smallest thing can make it go up like a, you know, tinderbox. A gender reveal party could fuck. Yeah, it all that's up. right. That caused one of the big fires. That's absolutely insane. <laughs> right. Stop it with the gender reveal parties. Nobody <laughs> gives a fuck. <laughs> Please. As somebody's had. As somebody's had a child and did not know the gender until my son entered this world, I highly recommend it. <laughs> uh, it's the best surprise you'll ever get. And the gender reveal parties aren't worth aren't worth it. It seems always just uh, I'll make a party out of anything, right? If you can commercialize it and make some money off of it, uh, why not? It's disgusting. <laughs> disgusting fiat culture. <laughs> like whoring out your kids before they even enter the world. You get a bunch of free stuff, right? Strollers yeah. and there's at the baby showers. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, the uh, baby. I don't have a kid, so I'm not too familiar with that. The, the baby accessory uh, market is the industry. It's not a market; it's a, it's a whole full blown industry. Mm -hmm. People are making out like goddamn bandits. It's ridiculous. I always hear people complaining about diaper prices. Are those insane? As I hear, I, I believe so. My wife handles all that. <laughs> um, I, I, got, I just check in on Amazon every once in a while. and uh, yeah, It's a first world privilege right there. I don't even know. Um, the the uh, We have, I guess, uh, there's an actress. I'm trying to think. She's in Saving Sarah Marshall. Um, forgetting Sarah Marshall? Forgetting Sarah Marshall, yes. Saving Private uh, Ryan and forgetting yeah. Sarah Marshall come in for a crazy <laughs> new Hollywood mix. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the collab you weren't expecting. <laughs> Sarah Marshall goes to war. <laughs> um, but the actress, I forget her name. She has like a diaper company, and they're like the cheapest on the market. And they're they're cool. She's apparently uh, on a vendetta against Huggies to to bring down the, the diaper empire. Jeez, what an empire to take down! Yeah, Huggies. <laughs> not for long. Not for much longer. Um. Do you guys have like a a bell that goes off every time you mine a block in the <laughs> office? <laughs> That's a great idea, though. Now that you've mentioned it, um, no, we don't. I'm <laughs> I'm sure a couple of the other offices in the building would get annoyed if we did. But yeah, it's a good idea. Um, yeah. Oh God! Just some music starts playing, and we all have to get up and dance yeah. like the people at the ice cream shops. <laughs> Yes, turning slush pole into a stone cold uh, ice cream place, whatever they're called, stone cold parlor. Uh, what about you? What's going on with Gam? We're just trying to lock up gas deals. Hell yeah! Man. Plug in as much machines as possible, as many machines as possible. Uh, now we're perfecting our container design. We just built. Um, we just finished a couple containers this week, and. Um, they're the best we've built to date and we're also working on some immersion we want to get into west texas to do that cool you need you need successful immersion systems so we're designing that out um and it's that again yeah it's fun like and i'm i'm the idiot of the company who uh is just forward facing and uh the ability to uh interact with our engineers um is a, I feel incredibly fortunate. The, the stuff that they're working on feels very cutting edge, and mm. they're some of the smartest people I've worked with ever in my life. And so, just being able to learn from them, I mean, you have a chemical 
a mechanical engineer on staff so just get into these deep conversations about uh, physics and, and chemical engineering it's like well because well, with what we're doing in the oil fields we're dumping these containers off in very harsh environments so you, you don't have to take into consideration the uh the factors outside of the container that affect uh, the inside of it, which is airflow and wind, and dust particle and stuff like that. Um, I can totally sympathize with that. Being the some of the forward-facing guys, and the hearing some of the devs and engineers speaking at the company, it's just completely over my head half the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell is yeah. going on? Um, some of like the really you know nuanced, deep parts of of the tech still just completely escape me some parts of uh the firmware or some hardware plays we're doing or some parts of v2 but it's just a constant uh learning process as you go along no it is and that's again i feel extremely fortunate to be a part of uh this journey with great american mining specifically and uh yeah so we, we've been doing like a weekly webinar catered towards oil and gas industry folks who want to learn more about Bitcoin and mining specifically. And that's just been a fun experience, uh, seeing how people in the energy sector view Bitcoin and are beginning to become more curious about it. And, uh, it feels like synapses are beginning to fire in the oil and gas industry, uh, in regards to Bitcoin mining. Mm. So it's just exciting to, to see people having aha moments and being like, Oh my God, this, this could be huge for us. So, it's actually it's been fun. Personally, I think it's the most interesting part of Bitcoin mining, <clears throat> the whole oil and gas sector. It's just like the benefits of it, um, how untapped it is, the just the awesomeness of something like oil and gas meeting up with Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's it's remote. Uh, some people having to get on like LTE SIM networks, uh, satellite internet, and how how much some of their operations need to be customized as a result of their environment they mine in. It's, really interesting yeah yeah we're we're paying attention to starlink um <laughs> interested to see if elon can deliver on that oh, yeah. uh that satellite internet because uh, honestly if it does work the way they think it may be able to it would definitely help us out in the middle of north dakota these far off places that aren't are near cities with better internet connections what are you using for your internet currently we have satellites satellite internet um, but uh, something like Starlink successful to make it much, much better bandwidth. Got to get BOS uh, on your machines with a proxy. Reduce your data consumption like forty percent. What are you doing, Marty? Well, Edward, <laughs> that's why we're having a call next week. The <laughs> um, yeah, when when what's minor? We're just going to keep bothering you with that. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. We've had it exploited for a while, meaning like we're inside the machine. It's unlocked. We have root access. Um, and it's pretty much mostly reverse engineered at this point. The, the last remaining task, which honestly, uh, when we're still, when we're not super close to the date it's released, I don't even ask the devs for a deadline anymore because it's so impossible to get an accurate estimate. Um, but the last thing we're working on now is uh, basically porting over boss miner support into the what's miner. And it's a lot smoother and quicker now with the ant miners because once you do one, everything becomes much easier on the other models after that. There's a lot of similarities in some of the architecture. But with um, a completely new line of machines, it takes a little extra time. But um, 
uh, I'm pretty sure it should be 2020 or potentially the beginning of 2021 when we start pumping out the uh, M20S and M30S firmware. Um, I'm going to hold you to that. Yeah, I mean, that that's the best estimate I've heard, which means, you know, who knows, anything could happen. Maybe it's a little sooner, maybe it's a little later than that. But uh, don't don't include that part on the podcast. I don't want to be held accountable. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Edward, if you listen to this podcast, you know I don't edit. <laughs> I uh, actually have to remind myself, uh, I have to edit out a pee break in a, in a podcast. I can't forget that. It'll just be two minutes of dead air. Um, this is my editorial process right now. I was just reminding myself on the go, and so I'm definitely going to forget that you... You don't want that included in the the episode, so too, tough luck. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, man, it's been fun. Yeah, thanks, uh, for, thanks for having me on. It's been uh, a fun conversation. I felt like I rambled a little bit there, in some yeah, points, but I had a good time. This podcast is just one large ramble, so uh, hopping between firmware pools V two. Cheese. Cheese. 17th century New England. It, my brain gets a little scrambled. Probably messed something up in there. Well, I mess stuff up all the time, so not gonna not gonna hold it against you. Beautiful. But maybe your boss as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything? Any parting notes? Any any final thoughts you want to get out there before we wrap up here? Um. Hmm. Let's see here. I guess just. Uh, Come check us out and what we're doing, uh, Brains. We're we got a mining pool called Slush Pool, as most of you probably know. We have pretty sweet firmware called Brains OS Plus that makes your machines more profitable, um, and also gives you zero pool fees if you use it in conjunction with us. Um, we have some actually other exciting projects coming out in the near future that you should keep an eye on, and uh, yeah, just interact with us. Whenever you see fit, if you have any questions, reach out. I'm available in the Twitter sphere and all that. But um, just to end, thanks again, Marty. And it was a real pleasure having the conversation with you. The pleasure was all mine, Edward. And I really love your Twitter handle. You can follow Edward on Twitter at WillHash4Coins. number four coins. Will hash 4 coins the number four. Um, very, very, uh, very fitting considering your line of work. Yeah, it didn't take long for me to think of that one. I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I didn't really use Twitter before I got into uh, to mining. It's a new thing to me. Um, but it's a dirty place. It's a dirty place. It is a really know. dirty place, isn't it? You're, you're clean, pretty face should stay away from this whole environment. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I get angry at myself for getting too drawn into Twitter. Everyone's screaming at each other and memeing each other and shitting on each yeah, other. Very, what a... very few. seems that like very few people are happy on Twitter. No, 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 no. I doubt many are. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm gonna go get angry on Twitter. Go to the bathroom. Right I've been drinking tea during this whole interview, and I haven't peed, so I'm about to burst. Well, well, enjoy that relief. I will. Thank you for coming on, and uh, yeah, keep crushing, man. I'll uh, I'll definitely see you in the mining channels that we that we bump into each other at. Hell yeah! All right, and so we got peace and love, freaks. Peace.